If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Malachi. Book of Malachi, chapter 4. Most, most weeks as I am preparing to preach, I spend a lot of time just reading and rereading and reading, reading the passage that I'm going to be preaching on. And I also spend um, several times looking at other passages that relate to the text that I'm going to open up and expound. I spend a lot of time just thinking. Sometimes Melinda will come in and say, what are you doing? And I'm just kind of staring off and say, I'm thinking. What are you thinking about? Well, one of the things I think about is how to take the message that we find in the scriptures given to uh, a different people, but knowing it's the word of God, bring that to bear in our lives. And then as I've done a lot of thinking and I've done a lot of reading uh, and jotting down some notes on what I think the passage means, both uh, in its context and how we apply it today, then I go and look at what other people think it means. And uh, people that have spent a long time reading on it and thinking on it and pondering and things like commentaries and such to make sure that I'm moving in the right direction and I'm not becoming a heretic during that week. And uh, that process uh, is a laborious task. It's not just something that, you know, you play golf six days a week and you roll into bed on Sunday morning and, and, uh, and you, you have something to say. No, sometimes it takes up to 20 hours a week to put together the sermons that you hear on Sunday. And you need to know that this week, I frankly just didn't have the time to go through that process. There was lots of other ministry-related things to get done this week, including some help, helping some people get some things done around the church, preparing teacher's notes for Sunday school, being on a television show, Ask the Pastor, having a Rock the Block follow-up meeting. Then there was the concern for my family this week as well. Melinda has been working extra hours because it's only her and another nurse that are doing the work of four or five while the others are on vacation. That meant that part of my time was picking up the slack at home. Furthermore, uh, a couple weeks from now we'll be starting school and there was things that needed to be organized for that. Joshua and David are spending the week at, grandparents, at their grandparents this week and so uh, I felt like because I wouldn't see them I needed to invest extra time with them as well. We could go on but you get the idea that this week was um, a very long week with lots to do and frankly did not have the time to put towards the sermon that I usually do. But I think that's okay because I think in the end it may not be really very important how much time I put into the sermon. After all, God is powerful, He is sovereign, He can fill me with His Spirit and give me the words to say. Even if I don't do much study, I think He'll be here this morning. Surely He can't be too upset with me because He knows how busy my week has been and, he, and just by virtue of the fact that I'm here. He should be happy with that, right? Thankfully, some of you got it. Yes, all those things were true of the week that I've had this past week. All of those things were pressing and bearing in on me. Uh, but uh, uh, I didn't have to, to spring the mousetrap, as it were, to get you to see that um, regardless of how busy I was, there is no chance I was not stepping behind this sacred desk without sufficient time and thought and energy to bring to bear on this sermon. Why? Because we are gathered together for the public worship of God. And I have a responsibility as a leader to see to the best of my abilities, both in, in shaping and crafting the service, even as those that have prepared uh, to sing songs and play music, that I come prepared to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Nevertheless, though Sunday is in many ways the apex of our weekly worship, that's not the totality of our worship. Again, every single part of our lives, every moment of our life, 
we are either worshiping God, giving Him glory for that, or we're worshiping something else. How we treat God, how we treat others, how we live each and every day, all of that is either honoring to Him or not honoring. And I think that, frankly, there are times we have weeks like I just had this week, but instead of still worshiping Him, we become very lackadaisical in our approach. God expects our very best, but often we don't give our best. We become nonchalant and indifferent when it comes to the worship of God. We may feel a tug to do more, to think more, to be more sincere, but then questions like this begin to arise in our minds. How is God really caring for me right now? Does He really love me? Because I can't tell the way my life is going. Do I really need to give money to God through the church? Does God really need my money? How is God showing himself to be a just God? Well, there are sinners growing rich, there are righteous people being poor, and there are natural disasters occurring every day. Do I really need to give my best? Or is just making an effort good enough for him? When those kinds of thoughts and questions run through our mind, then we will find ourselves exactly in the place of God's people when the book of Malachi was written. Because virtually all of those questions are something culturally equivalent is asked by God's people throughout the book of Malachi. And God brings to bear an answer for every single one of those questions. Now, at the end of the day, the answer is this. Regardless of those questions that you may have, I have demonstrated myself faithful, God says. And you can continue to put your faith in me because of who I am and what I have done and what I've promised to do. Therefore, I will not accept worship that is unacceptable, that is lackadaisical, that is less than your very best, your very all before me. Malachi is the final prophet to speak to God's people in the Old Testament. And frankly, uh, when you read this, you would have hoped, I would have hoped at least, for something different. The, the, the whole of the Bible starts with God in glory, uh, creating all things, establishing man in his image, bringing him into relationship with him. And at the very end of the book, when you would expect as God's people, as he has chosen them out of the world, as he has shaped them, as he has guided them, as he has preserved them, and they have sinned and he has forgiven, and they have sinned again, and he has forgiven, and they have sinned again over and over and over, and he has forgiven them graciously, mercifully, decade after decade, century after century, that at this point, at the very end of the Old Covenant, as you're about to enter a period of 400 years of silence before God speaks again, there would be some kind of affirmation that God's people were actually getting it. And instead you find they have been brought back by God's grace, and now they've become bored with God. It's only about 100 years since the temple has been rebuilt as they have been brought back from exile. And yet here they are, indifferent, lackadaisical, half-hearted in their worship of the one true God. They have become indifferent to His law and again are frankly bored with Him. Though they never would again commit the formal sin of idolatry, never again would Israel bow down to the false gods of the culture as they had done before and had basically been led astray into exile because of that sin, they nevertheless failed to worship God as they deserved. And it's into this lukewarmness that the prophet comes to remind the people of their covenant with God. Though they have become routine in their worship and service to Him, going through the motions but lacking heart, He reminds them God does not lack heart. God is not going through the motions. He is still faithful to His promises. He is still showing mercy and love 
and keeping covenant with his people. Therefore, once more, a prophet calls the people back to God, this time with the focus on serious and true and heartfelt worship of him. And so this morning, as we think about the book of Malachi, as we think about the totality of its message, we want to do so by looking at its summary passage from chapter 4. And here we will seek to draw out the book's themes and apply its message to our own lives today. I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading at Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of God. At the heart of this passage is the command in verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, for that is the very thing Israel was failing to do. God is coming to them not with some new expectation, not seeking to point out to them some implied obligation that they failed to notice. No, all of these things were old hats. All of these things were to be the very basics of what they were to be living like as God's people. Furthermore, this was not open rebellion. This was not people saying, ah, forget those laws, we don't want them anymore, we're going to go over here and worship this false god. No, it wasn't that at all. People were still showing up at the temple with their sacrifices and their animals. People were still doing business as normal, externally obeying the law, but heartlessly, heartlessly just going through those motions. Despite God's gracious preservation of His people through exile, they were still failing to live as the kind of people God called them to be. Specifically, they were failing to live a life of worship that honored Him in a way that was worthy of His name. And again, this is a huge temptation for us, isn't it? We show up on Sunday, Sunday night if we're really spiritual, Wednesday night if we're of the upper crust, and yet all the while, we're just going through the motions. We sit and we half listen, thinking about the game in the afternoon or what we're having for lunch or who we're meeting. We sit and we come, listening to other people pray and give requests, but never thinking to pray ourselves because we're too distracted and thinking of other things. We show up for a community group, perhaps even. Listen to other people share, and perhaps we have read the chapter, at least part of it, and we say a few things, but we're really not interested in what people are thinking about and what people are going on in their lives. We just want to be there because we think it's expected and we want to get home and leave as quickly as possible. See how easy it is? See how easy it is for us even today to just go through the motions of godliness, yet as Paul says in 2 Timothy, denying its power to not actually have a heart for God or His people and to offer Him tiddlywinks for worship of our lives? This morning, as we think about that great temptation, the book of Malachi cuts to the deep in our hearts. Two things that we should do as we think about this message of Malachi. The first is this, we should offer worship that is worthy of God. 
We should offer worship that is worthy of God. And Malachi identifies what this looks like. Two ways in which our worship, two spheres of life maybe would be a better way of saying it, in which our worship will be found worthy of God. And again, specifically, these two ways are connected to this command, remember the laws of Moses. Remember the laws of Moses. And as we seek to strive to understand, not necessarily as even the laws of Moses, but even under the grace of Christ, nevertheless, we see the failure of Israel in the Old Testament here being a bad example that we should seek to positively correct in our lives. So the first thing is simply this. In offering worship that is worthy of God, we need to think about how we worship with our own lives. Worship with your own life. What are you offering to God with your life? That's the question here. What are you offering to God with your life? Malachi begins the letter by pointing out a very obvious flaw with the people's worship. Unsatisfactory sacrifices to God. In verse 10 of chapter 1, God utters words that I think all of us would cringe if they were spoken to us out loud today. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not set accept an offering from your hand. Now, if God is not accepting the offering, then they have no relationship with God at that point. It's over. Because the only means of relationship with God is through sacrifices. What, what's the problem with the sacrifice, the people ask in verse 7? God tells them, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Yeah, the people are coming and they're giving sacrifices. They're technically meeting the obligations of the law, and yet they're missing not just the specific commands, but the very intention of the law. Instead of offering animals that are without spot or blemish, pointing forward to the one true sacrifice who would come without spot or blemish, Jesus Christ. They're offering sacrifices that are sick or maimed or stolen or not even the right gender. I mean, you think about how difficult it is to pick out the right gender of animal. Those of you with animals, is it hard? No. In fact, it would have been, it was gracious for God to say it had to be the male. Why? Because all you needed the male for was reproduction. It was cheaper to get rid of the male than the female. And yet here they can't be bothered to decide. Well, let's check which one's the male and the female. We've got to take the male for the sacrifice. Now just grab one on the way. Let's go. We're running late. We might not make it to Jerusalem in time. God, why are they doing this? God says, you profane the Lord's table, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. You profane the Lord's table, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Now what does that mean? You snort at it. It means just that. Huh. We've got to find something that's not sick, it's not name, maimed. We've got to find something that's the best that we have and give that away. We even had to be bothered finding if it's male or female. <laughs> In other words, Israel just can't be bothered with all these regulations. Yes, yes, we've given the sacrifice. Isn't that enough? Do we really have to keep up with all the specifics? It's good enough, isn't it? Yet the problem of their hearts wasn't just seen in offering inferior sacrifices. They also weren't giving their tithe. As we read throughout the scriptures all the world rightly belongs to god because he made it anything that we have is uh, from the clothes on our back to the children in our cars have all come by god's gracious hand and israel was to not just believe this but to display that both to one another and to the world by giving a tenth of what they had to support the priests and their work in teaching and maintaining worship 
And here, I, 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 let me just take the time to say, because I know sometimes today we get caught up on this tithe. And you've got to give the tithe, you've got to give the tithe. Well, you understand, they didn't give one tithe. Okay? They gave a tithe of this. They gave a tithe of this. They gave a tithe of that. So Israel gives more than just one tithe of things. It's multiple things. So that no less than, most scholars believe, 27% of all that they had was being given back to God in worship of Him. 27%. And we get caught up on the 10% and say, well, I'm giving 10%. I'm doing exactly what God wants. Oh, really? 27% was mandated by law in the Old Covenant. How much are we willing to part with in service to God? Nevertheless, they're not even doing that. They're not even giving the minimum requirements of what was required by the law. And so God says to them in chapter 3, verse 8, you're robbing me. They're saying, how are we robbing you, God? And he says, you're not giving the full tithe. It's not because they couldn't either. It's not because they're poor. And because all that tithe would have reduced them to nothing. Because they didn't want to. They had new clothes to buy. They had animals to get. They saw that, that great adobe brick house down the street, and it just looked so nice. They had to have it. Well, what if we have left over at the end of the month? Then we'll, we'll give that to God. So we think about Israel's failure. We're forced to ask the question, what are we giving to God? You know, one of the things, frankly, that Melinda had to help me out with when we got married was this concept of leftovers. Okay, when I was growing up, we didn't have leftovers. It was my dad, my mom, and me. Three people, it was pretty easy to fix for. So you just fixed the meal and it was in, it was done with. Melinda had a bigger family, so they fixed, they're fixing more food. So let's just go ahead and fix a lot more food. And then we pack it up in the fridge, the freezer, we have it for later, right? It's great. I didn't realize that the first time. So where she lays out this nice Sunday lunch, and I'm thinking if I don't eat it, she's going to think I don't like it. I'm going to insult her. So I'm packing this stuff away. And, and so I'm going, oh my goodness, why did she fix so much food? This went on for two, three weeks, and finally she says, you know, John, we could have leftovers. <laughs> Ding, the light goes on. Leftovers. That's a good idea. Right? And, you know, and Melinda's a great cook, but you, can I tell you something? Leftovers are never good, as good, as the first time around, are they? I mean, I mean when she pulls, she pulls the steak off the grill and the veggies out of the pot and she lays them down. And you cut into it, and the juice, and you're just like, oh, that's great, you know. And then you, you go to, to rewarm the steak and the veggies. Well, it, it's, it's a meal, it's good, but it's not like the first time around. And yet, how many of us just give leftovers to God? We don't serve Him up the best. We say, well, I want to have my fill, and then whatever's left over, that's what I'll give to you, God. I know throughout my time here, I've said, in order to have a consistent growing walk with God, you've got to have a consistent time of prayer and reading the Bible. And I'll say, you know, the pattern that Jesus himself lays out, not by mandate, but by example, is to get up early and set aside time to get away with God. And I hear people all the time say, oh, I'm just not a morning person. And I, you know what? I get that because I'm not much of a morning person either. My eyes don't even start working until 30 minutes after I get up, Okay. Uh, they're just they're just not focused, all right? They're closed, I'm rubbing them. But here's my question. For those of us who say, well, we're not morning people. Okay, fine. So what is the best part of your day? And are you giving that over to spend with God? Or are you doing other things so that as you're brushing your teeth and popping your contacts out and, and uh, scratching your head as you climb into bed, you're thinking, oh, maybe I should give God a few minutes of prayer here as, as, I, as I drift into unconsciousness. 
It's, it's okay not to do it first thing in the morning, but you find the best part of your day and you give that to God. You say, I can't, I work. Really? Most of us, most of us can do our jobs with about 1% of our brain. And we can be doing something else like talking to God in prayer. We have a lunch hour and we can perhaps pull out a chapter of the Bible and read over and think about five minutes of our time and then meditate on that the rest of the time at work. Perhaps even share it with somebody else. Imagine that being a witness at work. Now again, I'm not one to press you on the details here. My point is simply this. What are you giving to God? Are you giving Him the best? Are you giving Him something that's warmed up from last week? when you come before Him with the worship of your life. The other thing that we need to think about is not just how we worship individually, but specifically, are we offering the worship of God that's worthy of Him in how we, in how we live with others? How we live with others. This is, this, this is the second thing here, worship in living with others. One prominent way the sin of the Israelites was seen uh, in Malachi is in the breakdown of the family. On the one hand, you had Israelites who were intermarrying with foreign women. God says in chapter 2, verse 11, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, was God racist? Get the foreigners out of here? No. God's not being racist here. God's goal wasn't some kind of racial purity. In verse 16, he says very clearly, he is seeking through marriage the goal of godly offspring. In other words, when a husband and a wife get married, the goal is offspring who are not sinful, do not follow after the ways of the world and after their sinful heart, but who follow after God. And so, I mean, just think about the problem that would happen. You marry a foreign woman who still has an allegiance to her foreign gods. What do you do with those kids? I mean, just think about it in a current situation. Imagine a Buddhist and a Christian Get married and say, this is going to be great. We love each other. It's not going to be a problem. Oh, really? Really? How, what are you going to teach the kids about God? Two very different ideas about God and Christianity and Buddhism. Are they going to go to a Buddhist temple or are they going to go to church? Are they going to go back and forth? Or are you going to teach them to trust Christ for salvation? Or are you going to teach them to seek nirvana through enlightenment and a continual cycle of reincarnation, life after life after life? I mean, it just doesn't work. It's not compatible. Furthermore, the individual themselves, if an unbeliever, should not be yoked together with a believer because God is clear to Israel. He says, when, 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 I, when you marry, it is a covenant before me. I seal your life together with my spirit. You understand the issue was not foreigners, it was pagan, idolatrous worship. And so you have Ruth, a foreigner, who comes to Israel and she converts. She puts away the false gods. She says they're not worthy of my trust and she trusts the one true God. And what happens? She gets married and everything's fine. It's fine, it's great. She becomes the great, 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 great grandmother or some number of Jesus Christ himself. It wasn't the, it wasn't the nationality it was the faith. It was the faith. By, by not marrying someone who trusted in Yahweh as the one true God, you were saying, he's not worthy of my trust either. He's not worthy of my worship either. Furthermore, there were those who were marrying pagans. There were others who refused to stay married to their believing wives. Some married foreign women and others divorced the wives that they already had. 
Malachi says the people are crying out to God, where is our blessing? Where is our blessing like you promised would come? And the answer comes back from God is, you're still sinning. There's not going to be a blessing. He says in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of, wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? The law made provision for divorce. Even Jesus makes provision for it in the New Testament, specifically through uh, unfaithfulness. But just because divorce was possible doesn't mean it was the ideal. Even then, that's not what's going on here. Verse 16 of the same chapter is clear. What is going on here is that the people are simply saying, I don't, the man is saying, I don't love her anymore, so I want to get a divorce. I'm just tired of her. After all, this was the wife of my youth. I was young. I didn't know she was going to grow up and look like that. I mean, how was I supposed to know she was going to get a debilitating disease and I would have to take care of her? Who was I to know marriage was going to be hard work? And I would actually have to give up some of my preferences. I would have to give up some old habits to make this thing work before God. So I don't love her anymore. I just want to, I want to bail. Where's the eject button on this thing? Our society calls this irreconcilable difference as God says it's sin. It says when you get married, you are entering into a promissory relationship with one another that I myself seal with my spirit. There is, even in the life of unbelievers, there is a spiritual union that is taking place in marriage. It's not something you just throw away because a person isn't the same or because you have trouble getting along. Frankly, we could spend all day here drawing out the principles. Let me give you two. Maybe two and a half. One, God says his people should only marry his people. Period. Full stop. End of story. I don't want to hear this. He says he's a Christian. She says she's a Christian. I can say a lot of things. I can say I'm an astronaut. Doesn't mean they're sending me up on the next shuttle mission. What does his life bear out? What does her life bear out? Secondly, God says, once you're married, couples that remain committed to one another for life, and here's with the, the, the half, with the aim of raising godly offspring. And here's a problem in our culture. We don't like kids anymore. We abhor kids. We'll have one if it's convenient and be done. Or we'll have one, and I hope they turn out okay. Now, what does God say? My design for marriage is the production of godly offspring. That means, in part... Though they themselves must have personal faith in God, the lives of my children fall on me when they're younger. If they're ungodly, I bear some of the blame. Furthermore, I need to seek to have kids. I can't just say it's inconvenient. I would much rather have the jet setter life. You can't, you can't put a car seat in the back of a Beamer. God says, then don't buy the Beamer. Man up and get the minivan. Right? <laughs> That's what he says here. This one preacher says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> Beyond marriage, God then goes on and gives a list of other sins between other people. Not just between you and God, but between other people. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, I will be swift against sorcerers, against the adulterers, one that would come in and break up a marriage, against those who swear falsely, that is, you're lying to other people, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. See, Republicans don't get everything right. Okay, there's another voucher. 
I am against the widow, those who would oppress the widow and the fatherless, against those who would thrust against the sojourner. God here is concerned that his people love other people, particularly the rest of Israel, striving not only for their welfare, but also for welfare and justice of others. In all of these things, God is saying this, part of what makes your worship honoring to me, part of what makes your life acceptable to me, is how you interact with others. It's not just me and Jesus and I'm letting him take the wheel. The life of worship before God is bigger than that. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. Their problems are your problems. Godliness is lived out both individually and in community. Fail to love others and God says, your worship isn't worthy of me. Now some of you have been listening to God call out Israel and now perhaps even your own worship as failing to meet his standard and you're wondering, how do I even come before God now? Because I've committed those sins. I've got a past I'm not proud of. And God says He doesn't want those kind of people. He doesn't find those kind of people acceptable to Him. Furthermore, maybe right now you're in the midst of some of those things and you're wondering, how is my, off, how is my worship, how is my, my life ever going to be acceptable before God? Well, the beauty of the answer is, even, even now, even after, you know, there are hundreds of years of dealing with Israel, sin and sin and sin. You know what he says? Return to me and I'll return to you. What is he saying there? He's saying if you feel the prick of conviction, if you feel the tug of God's Spirit saying your life is not right and you say, I want something different, God says, then come to me and I'll make things right. Come to me and I will forgive you. Come to me, and more than that, I will change you, he says, so that you will be acceptable before me. The answer is God himself. And just as we seek to offer worship that is worthy of God, we do so by faith in God. This is the second thing that we see. Offer worship that is worthy of God, and secondly, offer worship by faith in God. In chapter 3 we read, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore... You, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What is God saying? He's saying this, our hope for change, our hope for acceptability before God is not in ourselves, but in God who is changeless. He says, though you have remained faithless, I remain faithful, O Israel. And even in Malachi's day, not to mention the rest of redemptive history. The people are not destroyed, we are told, because God has remained constant in His character. After everything that has happened, after all that Israel has done to spite God, He was offering for them to return to Him and that He would likewise return to them, blessing them if they would return in faithfulness. And so again we read this promise in chapter 4 that we read at the beginning. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the Lamb with a decree of utter destruction. Even today, not just then, but today, God and His gracious intervention in our lives is the thing that gives us hope. It is His willingness to be patient with sinners and transform them to be His people that should motivate us and fuel us and encourage us and excite us to go and worship Him in faith. 
Specifically, there are two things that should encourage us to, to worship by faith. Number one, we worship by faith in God's character. By faith in God's character. It says we trust in God's character. Again, verse 4, remember that word. Remember. Remember the law. Earlier we emphasized God saying to remember the law itself, which they were not living up to, both in word or in heart attitude. But notice, he says that it's the law given at Horeb. Now that's just another word for, another name for Mount Sinai. Do you remember what God said to his people right before he gave them the law at Horeb, at Mount Sinai? Do you remember that he gave them in specific instructions? He said, go and, and, and ceremonially cleanse yourselves. Now he also said, you know, physically cleanse yourselves, but ceremonially do everything you possibly can to look clean and holy before me and then you come to the mountain. Don't touch the mountain or else you'll be consumed in my holiness. But you come and I will give you my law. We will enter into covenant together. You'll be my people and I will be your people. For three days they go away and the day comes and there's smoke and fire and lightning as they approach a holy God. And do you remember the first things out of God's mouth. The thing that is more important than you shall have other gods before me or do not make graven images or any of the actual laws that he gave. Do you remember the first thing he said? The very basis for his relationship with Israel. He said, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you understand what that means? That means their relationship with God is not ultimately based on the law. It's based on His grace. For He has already redeemed them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. They're calling out, somebody help us, somebody help us. And God says, I will be faithful to my promises to Abraham and I will help you. And by the blood of the Passover lamb, He brought them out of their slavery, out of bondage, out from under the tyranny of Pharaoh to be His people so that He could be their God. It wasn't based on what they did or what they were going to do. It was based on what He first did for them. Thus the relationship that God has with them is the bearing out of the very, the very character that He would later tell Moses is of His very essence. He says, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's been over a thousand years since he told that to Moses. And he's still forgiving faithless Israel. I think even today we can have confidence in God's character as that kind of a God. You see, some think God operates on the principle of if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If we do something good for God, if we give enough money to His church, if we, if we don't go to the dirty movies, then He'll forgive us, He'll save me, He'll love me. And that's not the principle He works on at all. In fact, God makes this abundantly clear in chapter 1. The people call out to God and say, Do you really love us? His answer is, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Of course, you have to know your, your Old Testament. Ultimately, the people of Israel come from Jacob. They are all his descendants. Jacob and Esau were two brothers, two twins. God chose one over the other. Why? Simply this. He chose to love one 
in His gracious saving way and to pass over the other. Why? Because one had done something good? No. In Romans 9, Paul says, they weren't born yet. Neither one of them had done anything good or bad. And yet God said, I will love Jacob and not Esau. And therefore he says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's ultimately what our relationship with God depends on. Not on human will or exertion, but on the God who has mercy. Israel's salvation, your salvation depends not on what you do, but on what God has done and the fact that He has chosen to set His affection on you even when you didn't deserve it. This is what should drive the worship of our lives. When we enter into this place on Sunday mornings, it should not be thinking, I've got to put on an appearance. I've got to do this so God will love me. I've got to do this so people will think wise of me. No, you come in here longing to sing God's praise, longing to love God's people. Because when you were unlovable, when you deserve to be left on the side of the road for dead, when you deserve to be trampled upon in ashes at the final judgment, God said, I will love you. He chose us in Christ to die for you, to make that love possible. We come to Him, we live before Him, we dedicate ourselves in service to Him, believing that He is of God of mercy, who called us to Himself by mercy, and will never cease to act mercifully in our lives. More than that, we don't just worship by faith in God's character, but we worship by faith in God's promises. God promises many, many things in the Bible, but here we have two of the most important, the promise of judgment and the promise of salvation. Again, chapter 4, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will stumble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the lamb with a decree of utter destruction. When we get to the New Testament, there is this amazing scene. And again, it's one of those times where you have, to, you have to find them. Maybe it'll be after 10,000 years. Maybe it'll be after 10 million years or 10 billion years. But maybe they'll finally let me get close enough to Peter or John. And I want to say, what in the world was this like? Because right in the middle of Jesus' ministry, right as he is preparing them, and the intensity of the preparation is increasing, he, he, he takes all the disciples out to pray on the mountain. And he says, Peter and John, you come with me. And they go up on this mountain and suddenly God comes down and this cloud of glory comes down. And suddenly they turn to look at Jesus and he's not just human Jesus anymore. Matthew says he becomes transfigured before their eyes so that something of the divine glory itself begins to emanate from his very presence. And they stand back agape and in awe and they turn around and back from the dead, some way, somehow, the mystery of God is both Moses and Elijah talking with this, this transfigured, glorious Jesus. And you know what Peter says, don't you? He 
says, man, let's, let's never leave this mountain. This is awesome. Let's pitch some tents and let's stay here forever. And ultimately Jesus says, no, we can't do that. It's not time. One day that day will come, Peter. You just wait. But the point was, Jesus was coming, not just as a man, not just in a prophet, but in fulfillment of all the law that came through Moses and the prophets typified by Israel's greatest prophet, Elijah. He was coming and they were bearing witness to the fact this was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was bringing to completion all that the old covenant looked forward to. But that was not the coming of Elijah the prophet looks forward to. Because in fact, Peter and John say, hey, is this, is this what Malachi talked about? And he says, no, this isn't it. It was John the Baptist. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, straddling between Old Covenant and New Covenant. He came paving the way, the messenger to the final messenger, me, the Messiah, turning people away or, or turning people towards me with a message of repentance so that when I come, people will see that I am the fulfillment of God's plan. I am the way, ultimately, that they can be made right with God, even as sinners. And what Malachi saw together in this vision as one coming is actually two comings. Jesus came first, satisfying the righteous requirements of the law, offering His life as a perfect sacrifice, bringing to fulfillment all of the other sacrifices that were offered so that we could have forgiveness in life when we trust in Him. But He says, not just in death, but now raised to life, I am coming again. And this time He will not ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Instead, it says He is coming on a white horse prepared for war. And the horrific vision of a final judgment where people are consumed in flame will one day be reality as sinners are ultimately destroyed forever for their refusal to love God and to turn to Him in fear and in worship like they were created to do. But there is that promise of those that would fear God's name Instead of the blazing sun coming and consuming them for their sin, it would be a sun rising of blessing, a sun of righteousness that would cause them to rejoice and leap for joy at the salvation God provided. All of this is possible for us through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And as we seek to offer acceptable worship for God, we must do it remembering these promises of judgment, and of salvation. It's not only God's gracious character that has got us in, but it is His gracious character that continues to uphold us. We live in light of larger realities. This isn't just something that we pencil into our lives. I'm going to worship the Lord Monday from 9.30 to 10.30. Now, everything that we do is lived in light of the reality that there is a judgment coming for all men, and there's only one way to escape it through faith in Jesus Christ. This week I read that when Jimmy Carter was president, on several occasions he would leave the White House and he would call up the home of some random common American and ask if he could spend the night at their house. Now how do you suppose those people host the president? Can you imagine getting that phone call? The president wants to come and he wants to stay at your house. He wants to connect with real Americans. I mean, what, I mean, can you imagine what you would do? I, do you suppose that 
If they were told he was coming at 5, at 4 they were out working in the garden with their overalls on and their A-shirt, their straw hat. So when they, sh when they showed up, they're covered in dirt, sod, sweat, taking their glove off to have to shake his hand. Do you suppose that when it came time for dinner, they said, uh, these Totino pizzas are great and they're cheap and that's what we've decided to, to fix for you tonight? Do you think they would have said here, Mr. President, bunk out on the couch. Here's a couple pillows and a blanket. You can turn off the lights when you're ready. I don't think so. I don't think that's how they responded. In the same way, I have to wonder how differently. Because I think about my own face and my own heart on some Sunday mornings. Sometimes when I look out at your faces, I have to wonder how much differently we would sing on Sunday mornings if we could see Jesus himself standing here on the platform before us. Would we truly worship the king if he were here standing before us where we could see him? I wonder if we would give our offering differently. I wonder if we would have different conversations in the hallways. I wonder if we would show up with more visitors in our cars if Jesus himself was waiting here for us when we arrived visibly. I wonder how differently we would live our lives each day if we could see Jesus physically standing next to us at work, sitting in our living room while the television was on, watching over our shoulder as we balanced our checkbook, riding with us in the car as we passed the homeless person on the road, sitting next to us in the voting booth, or listening to the conversation we have with our families each night. The sad reality is, I think our lives would be very different and yet Jesus is here with us. Do not believe for a second that because He is not bodily standing next to us, that His Spirit does not dwell inside His people, and that He sees everything that happens, and that He is here with us. Is this not why Paul says, don't grieve the Spirit of Christ? It's because He can be grieved. When we say those words that we can't ever take back, that cut like daggers into the soul of the person receiving them, Christ is there, grieved, by our sin. And in all those things and a million more, as we worship Christ with our lives both in this place and throughout the week, does He find our offering worthy of His glory? Or does He find a heart that's indifferent, that's cold, simply serving up the leftovers of our life? Friends, I don't, I don't want to live a life like that. I don't want to live a life of indifference of handing leftovers to my Savior and my King. But it's only, it's only by trusting in God's character, by looking to Him in faith, knowing that He alone is the one who can transform the heart of the sinner while I seek to obey His commands. That's the only way by which my worship will ever be acceptable before Him. And so for all of us, from the man behind the desk to those of you sitting in the chairs, the key, the key for offering acceptable worship is to look to Jesus in faith each and every day, moment by moment, trusting in Him and Him alone to make us right before God. Christ, we come before You now in prayer knowing that there have been times when we have failed to give You acceptable worship. Father, we know there are times when we have been going through the motions. God, we are sorry for that. We confess that to You as sin. And Father, we are humbled at your mercy that you would forgive us that sin. 
Father, you say that all sin is forgivable because you, you, O oh Christ, die on the cross. So, Father, we pray that the Spirit of Christ that you have sent into our hearts upon faith, that it would well up within us, filling us even as wind fills the sails on a ship, moving us along in the right direction, causing our eyes to gaze to our Savior, who was not dead on a cross, but raised up from an empty tomb, standing at your right hand, interceding for us even now. Father, continue to change us poor sinners. Help us to remember the covenant relationship that we have with you. Help us to remember that our life is not just lived as individuals, but lived in community with one another. God, in every way, change our hearts that we might look like your people, both to one another and to a dying world around us. Amen.